You're listening to Teaching from Midtown Fellowship, a Jesus-centered family on mission in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in finding out more about us, our family of churches, or how to partner with us, go to midtowncolumbia.com. Good morning, family. Uh, It's with a very heavy heart uh, that I'm prepared to uh, preach God's word today. Uh, As I know uh, we are familiar with, there have been uh, some killings by police officers of unarmed black and brown people recently uh, that has made things very difficult. I know for me and I know for many of you as well. And one of the things that I believe I'm noticing about myself and some of our people in our church as well here at Midtown Two Notch is the pain and the difficulty that we feel uh, as a result of these just senseless killings of black and brown people, which obviously is going on now and has been going on um, in a very brutal way uh, since even before we were a country. Uh, I feel like I've noticed something specific that it's doing to us that I wanted to uh, honestly just expose and talk about as Christians, how we might respond to that. And one of the things that I'm noticing in myself and in a number of, of us that I've talked to is the, the, the numbness that we're starting to, to feel. It's like if you use your hands a lot and to do something that really hurts your hands, calluses can begin to form uh, on your hands. It's a protective measure. It's, it's rougher. Uh, on the surface. It's a protective measure. Um, And at the same time, it prevents you from being able to feel and actually feel what's going on in the way that maybe we previously have been. And I've noticed a a desire for me and myself to to numb, to distract myself from it, to not allow the emotions of living in a broken and fallen world to actually run their course. Um, And that's what pain often does, uh, especially when it's been a pain that's been reoccurring over and over and over again, especially uh, when there are those outside voices that might seek to communicate that maybe you shouldn't be hurting the way that you are or that you just need to just stop rushing to these judgments and conclusions. And there's a very deep and real pain that I know many of us are experiencing and dealing with right now. And so I just wanted to provide something that I believe we should do on top of obviously fighting for justice and raising awareness and things like that. Uh, there's a, a passage in the Bible that I, I often run to personally in times like this uh, to remind me that as a follower of Jesus, how I should respond, and it's Psalm chapter 62. We won't have it on the screen, uh, but I'll just read uh, the first few verses, the first couple of verses. It says, For God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation my fortress, I shall not be greatly shaken. David is a man that has experienced oppression. He knows what it's like when Paul was seeking to kill, not not Paul, excuse me, when Saul, King Saul was seeking to take his life and he was running for cover. He knows what it's like to rely on the Lord. And he says that God is his rock and his salvation and his fortress. And in, in time of war, a fortress was your safe place. It's where you go when you're anxious and when you're fearful and when there's danger all around. Your fortress is where you run to. And David is saying that his fortress 
is God. His fortress is not living in denial of the difficulty. His fortress is not in numbing himself. His fortress is not in pretending that things aren't as bad as they actually are, but instead he brings his full self to God. And at other points in, in the Bible, we see that this, this, this practice of, of pouring your heart out to God, of casting our cares on him because we know that he cares for us. And so that's what I want to continue to call us to do at, at Midtown Too Much. And I want to just try to model that for us by just um, praying and just pouring out my heart to God about all of this um, just briefly. And then I'll pray and then I'll pray for the sermon and I'll get right into trying to preach God's word. Uh, to us this morning, because we do still need to continue to preach God's word um, in season and out of season. Uh, so one thing that I would recommend uh, as we seek to pour out our hearts to the Lord and cast our cares upon him, uh, I always recommend writing down um, just things that we want to make sure we go to God about and pray. And I have three things that I would recommend you using as well, especially if you're like me, and you know you have a tendency to move towards numbness and just stuffing everything down. And the first thing uh, that I, I recommend to people is to write down what you feel and why. Even if it's just short notes, you don't have to write, write it all out in complete sentences necessarily, but just something that, that triggers your mind to remember what you feel when, when you go to God and pray. And then, so what do you feel and why? Also, who is God? What is true about God? What is praiseworthy about God? What things are true about God, even if our circumstances may seem like those things aren't true? What is true about who God is? That's number two. And then number three, uh, what do you want to see God do? What are the requests? What do we want to see God change? How do we want to see God act? So again, those three are, what do you feel and why? That's a focus on self. Who is God? That's a focus obviously on him and who he is. And what do you want to see God do? What are the requests that we bring before God? And so I just, I just jotted down a few things here on my notepad that I want to just read, or excuse me, that I want to just pray through uh, just for a couple minutes, and then we'll get into the sermon uh, for this week. Um, Father, I I admit that um, after seeing the the video uh, of Mr. Floyd and how he was killed, um, I I had anger, but I didn't just have anger. I had an anger that was stronger than any anger I can remember feeling in a very long time. I don't think it's a stretch to say that I felt hatred in my heart for the police officer, and I wanted to confess that to you. I want to confess that I felt in my heart a desire for something really bad to happen to him. I'm going to just share with you that I, I felt fear somewhat for myself, but probably even more so for some reason for loved ones that I have. Um, fear for their lives, fear for their safety, fear for, honestly, for those in our church that are just so hopeless in these times. Fear that we wouldn't be able to find any type of hope in you, any type of, of peace of mind and in our hearts. Fathers, we deal with the, the realities. Um, the realities of the oppression in our world, of, of those who use their power in cruel ways to harm people and how that has been the case for black and brown people for hundreds of years. And Father, I know for myself and I know for us, as many in our church, many are watching this, Father, we are grieving, we're afraid, we're worried. 
And somehow we're just supposed to continue on with our lives, continue at work, continue in school, continue raising our, our, our families, continue contributing to uh, our, our, our world and our communities. For me, continue on somehow preaching a sermon from your word when I've just been on the brink of tears for at least a day and a half now, nonstop it feels like. Some of us even feel as if our lives aren't valuable, like they don't matter. Every time we see a video of a senseless killing, one of the things that just continues to come to my mind is how long in our country that people with lighter skin who are in power are able to use that power brutally against black and brown people who, because of the government, are forced to submit to the authority that is there. It's so discouraging and it feels like there's nothing that I can do that will actually have impact. Father, I need to remember that you are good no matter what. I need to remember that you are my fortress, that you are my rock, that you are my salvation. Father, that the injustices and the oppression in this world does not change your character as you have proven yourself to be good to us, as you have already proven your goodness. Father, you are almighty, you are loving, you are near the oppressed, and you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to come who died under the oppressive Roman government, and one day you will take us away. When injustice and oppression and murder and killing and senseless death will be rid from your people forever, you are a loving God, and you are our rock, our fortress in the middle of the pain, and you are the one powerful and loving enough to rid us of it when you return for your people. And you are the God of justice, and we know that because of you, there is no sin that will go unpunished, whether it occurs after you return or whether all of that just wrath was poured out on Christ. We know that you are a God of justice. Help us to not be overcome with evil, but rather to overcome evil with good, as you say in your word in Romans 12. And Father, we ask that you would bring an end to all the senseless killing, all of the deaths, all of the hashtags, all of the videos, Father, so that this world will begin to look more and more like your kingdom, like heaven every day. Father, help all of us to see our own value in you. Help us to see the value of those around us, regardless of skin color. Help us to see everyone as those, as those who are made in your image. And I ask that you would strengthen us. Strengthen us to endure everything that we deal with until that becomes a reality. And we know if it doesn't happen in this life, we know what will happen in the next. And Father, I want to just pray for the sermon. Pray that your spirit would uh, just give me strength to proclaim your word as it needs to be proclaimed. Uh, give your people strength to hear your word, to receive your word, to wrestle with your word, to be encouraged, encouraged, challenged, sanctified, and built up in our faith. And we ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Uh, if you can, go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 4. Uh, we'll uh, begin in verse 1. Again, Matthew chapter 4, we'll begin in uh, verse 1. Uh, one, of the, one of the things about uh, being a pastor 
uh, that has been uh, challenging for me and even talking to other pastors uh, in our family of churches, uh, our downtown church and our Lexington church as well. Um, one of the things that we have talked about that has just brought us a lot of just pain and sadness and difficulty is uh, the number of people that have been around Midtown uh, for a period of time, for a number of years, people who we uh, have seen, uh, as far as we can tell, taking steps towards Christ and being sanctified by him. Uh, and then somehow, um, some way, something happens, um, and then maybe they leave our church first, or maybe before, even while they're around our church, they just begin to fall away uh, from the faith. They begin to uh, no longer uh, follow Christ, no longer claim to be a Christian. Uh, and this is one of the things that as a pastor is not only confusing, but uh, it's, it's heartbreaking as well. It's, it's truly heartbreaking. And it just leads with questions like, how does this happen, right? Maybe you've experienced the same thing with loved ones, maybe with family members, and you're asking the same questions, just like, how does this happen? How did, how did this person get here? What caused this person to do this? Uh, the Apostle Paul is going to, t going to deal with this very issue uh, in the passage in 1 Timothy chapter 4 today about those who have been led away from the faith, who have departed uh, from the faith. And we'll get insight into what leads, what leads people to do this. And through that insight, I believe we'll be able to see a path forward that we might continue on in being strengthened in our faith uh, and thus not depart from our faith. Let's begin 1 Timothy chapter 4 verse 1. Now I'll just read verses 1 through 5, and then we'll work our way back through. It reads, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences have been seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made, by, it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. So we see here in the first two verses, Paul comes right out of the gate and lets us know what is going on behind the scenes. It's as if he is pulling back the curtain and lets us know what is going on behind the scenes when people depart from the faith. Let's look at verses one and two again. He says, now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences have been seared. So there are three things that I want to point out from these, from these two verses. Uh, one is just that people are departing from the faith, as I've already brought up. And Paul says this is because they have devoted themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons, that people have committed themselves to these teachings, that people have become loyal to these teachings is what he's saying. And he says the third thing I want to point out is that they are devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose conscience, their, their, their grasp of, of right and wrong, whose conscience has been seared and has been damaged to the point that it is basically useless. So this obviously puts demons and deceitful spirits as the cause of people departing from the faith, from following Christ. 
to make sense of this, I think we need some type of understanding of what many people refer to as the spirit realm or maybe the spiritual realm. And the Bible makes it very clear that there are spiritual beings and forces at play that are not visible to human eyes, generally speaking. And we see an example of this in 2 Kings chapter 6, where the prophet Elisha, he and his servant, they're surrounded by the Syrian army, which is an enemy of God's people, the people of Israel at this time. And they're surrounded because the king of Syria is furious with Elisha, who was the prophet of God to God's people at this time. And so Elisha's servant is just terrified, and we get eyes into what happens next. We look at verse 17. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. That the reality of the situation was that there was an, the Syrian army was surrounding them, and Elisha's servant was terrified. But also, in reality, in actual reality, even though they weren't able to see it, was the army of God, a heavenly army that was surrounding them as well and protecting them. If you're familiar with the story, the story ends in, in a peace agreement between Syria and the people of Israel. It's an amazing story. We'd love for you to read it on your own time. But God ultimately gives Elisha and his servant victory over the army because there were things going on that could not be seen, that the, the, the heavenly armies, if you would, were surrounding Elisha and the servant. We also see Paul talking about this unseen realm, if you would, in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, where the apostle Paul writes, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Paul is showing us that our, that our primary battle that we have as followers of Jesus is not one that we can physically see most of the time. It's not against flesh and blood. It's against rulers and, and authorities and, and cosmic powers and present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil, the Apostle Paul writes. And if we're going to be able to walk in victory over these forces, we need to be aware of how they attack. What is their, what is their plan? How do we fight against them? And as we see in our text that we were just in, our text for the day, 1 Timothy chapter 4, and throughout Scripture as a whole, that the enemy, that demons, demonic activity, works through lies, work through deceit. We won't have to turn there for today, but Jesus actually in John chapter 8 refers to Satan as the father of lies. And if you understand what an angel actually is. These fallen angels, often referred to as demons, if you understand what an angel actually is, it actually makes sense that this is how the fallen angel, Satan and his demons, would attack. See, the term angel in the Bible actually means messenger. It means one who is sent with a message. And so we see angels throughout scriptures, Old Testament and New Testament, carrying messages from God. They are messengers sent by God. These fallen angels, those who followed, as it is believed, Satan, when he fell from heaven, now they seek to deceive, but they are still functioning as messengers. They, they originally functioned as messengers who were communicating the truth of God's word, and now they are fallen angels, and they are still messengers that communicate and seek to deceive us with untruths that go against God's word. They are deceptive. These demonic forces work primarily through 
deceit, and they are effective with half-truths and putting a question mark where God has put a period. I want to try to give you an example in Genesis chapter 3. We'll start at verse 1. Well, this is talking about Satan himself referred to as the serpent here in Genesis chapter 3. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? So he's putting a question in God's word. He's kind of changing it up, and then it gets worse. Verse 2, and the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you shall not surely die. I mean, you're not really going to die if you eat it. I'm going to point out two specific things that the enemy does in his lies, in his deceits. The first one I want to point to is that he distorts God's word. Satan distorts God's word. He comes and asks, did God really say this? Or when Eve says, hey, this is what God said, Satan responds and saying, but you won't really die as the father of lies He's a crafty liar. Most good lies have a little bit of truth in them, and there is some kind of truth there and also some degree of truth that's been changed, edited, or bent in a certain direction. And we see this with the lie he told Eve and Adam in verse 5. He says, For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. He tells them, if you eat of this, you will have a knowledge that you didn't have. You will know things right now that only God knows. And to be honest, there's, a, there's an amount of truth in that. They didn't have an experiential knowledge of evil at that point and of sin. They, they didn't have a knowledge of the effects of it at that time as God knew what would happen. There, there, there is truth in what he was saying, but his truth is bent in a direction to convince them that, hey, God is actually holding out on you that God actually isn't giving you the things that you want or maybe the things that you need in this life, that God is actually withholding joy and good things from you. So not only was he distorting God's word, but he also, here's the second point, he denies God's goodness. He denies God's goodness. He distorts God's word and he denies God's goodness. And though to some of us, Satan being about this deception and these lies might seem less scary, maybe than what we see in the New Testament, specifically in the Gospels, where there were different people who were, who were you might translate that word, oppressed by demons or, or possessed by, by demons. And there were all of these physical manifestations and they were doing things that was just so, so different and out of the ordinary. I think for, me, for many of us, that might be the most scary thing that we think about when we think about Satan and demons and, and the things that demons do. But I would argue that actually his lies should be even more scary to us. That if we were truly aware of all of the damage that his lies do, all of the harm that his lies cause, I believe that we would actually be more afraid of the lies that he tells us, the deception, the half-truths, the bending of the truth that affect us in so many ways, I believe that should cause us even more pause and more reason for concern. You see, someone's beliefs and understanding of reality, especially what they believe to be true about God and themselves, has enormous effect over someone's life. Enorm what, what you perceive to be true about the world, about the universe, about what's right, about what's wrong, about what's good and about what's bad, 
in some ways, that, that belief system has, has much power over you and over your life. What you believe about yourself will affect your relationships, for example. If your past experience have caused you to conclude that you are unlovable, then you'll interpret the actions of your friends, of those who truly care about you through the lens of people don't actually love you, people don't actually care about you, so you won't be able to give people the benefit of the doubt. So, for example, if you reach out to somebody, maybe through a phone call or maybe through a message or email or something like that or a text message, and they don't respond to you immediately, you might interpret it as, oh, well, they did that because they don't really like me. You might have just a sense about yourself and you'll be convinced that you're right, that really the reason this person is not responding or didn't respond quickly is because they don't like me. Maybe you'll tell yourself, hey, if this person had reached out to them, I bet they would have responded a little bit earlier. And that is because our lens and the way we view reality, what we believe to be true about ourselves and about reality in general will always affect the way we interpret our circumstances. It'll affect the way that we feel, the way that we live, the way that we respond to people. You'll be, you'll be unable, if that's the case for you, unable to give your friends the benefit of the doubt, unable to give maybe family members, maybe your spouse the benefit of the doubt, and you'll assume the worst about them. What you believe about yourself will affect your ability to achieve and endure in some instances. There's some of us who are watching this right now, and because for whatever reason, you have arrived at the conclusion that you are incapable of accomplishing things. You just doubt your ability to accomplish and and succeed. And so there are many opportunities that you just have passed up that would have actually been very good for you. Or maybe you didn't pass up the opportunity. Maybe you've just procrastinated over and over and over again because you fear how how that rejection will make you feel Maybe you failed at things in the past and you just come to, the, come to believe about yourself that you just can't accomplish your goals and your tasks because maybe of something that's happened to you in the past, maybe something someone said to you. I'm trying to, I bring this up to make the point that the things that we believe to be true about ourselves, about reality, about the way life works always, always affect us. A.W. Tozer brings this up in a Godward direction where he says, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Let me say that again. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. If you think God isn't good enough to be trusted with your life, or if you don't think he's powerful enough to make all things work out for your good and for his glory, then you'll feel the need to control oftentimes everything in your life, And you'll feel very anxious and you feel very worried when your life doesn't go the way that you planned it to go. Why? Because the things that you believe about God will affect the way that you live in this life. Or if you're a Christian and you believe that God only tolerates you instead of really delighting in you. If you believe he doesn't really like you, he just tolerates you because he has to, because he's a father, and that's what a father has to do. So yes, he, he, technically he loves you, but he doesn't really like you or delight in you or really want you around. If that's how you feel, then you'll always have this insecurity in your relationship with God. Maybe after you sin against him in some way, it'll be incredibly difficult for you to go to him in prayer And even if you do go to him in prayer, you won't really feel like he wants you to come to him. And so you'll be a little bit slower to go to him. You'll be a little bit more hesitant to go to him. If you have come to believe that God isn't actually who he says he is to the point that it makes him undesirable to you, you may wind up like those that Paul talks about in the the first verse 
of, a few, of excuse me, 1 Timothy chapter 4, and those that many of us know and, and love that have departed from the faith, if you have come to believe that God really isn't who he says he is. Someone's belief and understanding of reality, especially what they believe about God, again, has enormous effect on our lives. And because of this, we must be mindful, we must be aware, we must be able to, to, to perceive and understand. We must be able to expose the lies that Satan tells us, the, the half-truths that he tells us, the, the deceitfulness that he brings to us. So let's pick back up at verse 2 again and, and see how these lies from these demonic spiritual forces are playing out there at the church in Ephesus. Back in, in verse 2 of 1 Timothy chapter 4, the Apostle Paul writes, Through the insincerity of liars whose consciences have been seared. Right? Okay, so this, this deceit is coming through these people that are lying. Their consciences have been seared, so they no longer have accurate concern for what is actually right and what's actually wrong. Either, either they can't tell what's actually right and actually wrong, or they can tell, but they just don't care anymore. So these fallen angels with their false messages get us to believe lies about God and ultimately fall away. So there are unseen things happening that are affecting the world around us, especially the way that we think. So the enemy primarily likes to work behind the scenes, getting liars to deceive people and hearers and then catch this from verse 1, devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons. And so we believe them. We entrust ourselves to these lies. We become loyal to them. We embrace them. They begin to affect the way that we interpret life and the world and even God himself. And this often leads people to depart from the faith. So Paul just said that receiving false teaching was, in essence, devoting oneself to the teaching of demons. So then knowing the truth... And being able to stand on the truth, even when we hear false teaching and even when we hear lies, is vitally important for our faith. It's extremely important that you are able to detect and notice when people are lying to us specifically about God. That is important for every follower of Jesus to be able to do. I want to go back and read verses uh, three through five, to get a look into some of the specific lies that these liars were telling to the people at Ephesus. Verse three, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. So apparently in Ephesus, some of the false teaching was that you would be more holy if you practice a form of, uh, I think I'm saying this correctly, asceticism or ascetism, uh, which is a severe or extreme self-discipline and avoidance of and abstaining from things that one might be tempted to indulge in. This could take the form of saying, a form of saying things like, if you really want to be holy, you wouldn't get married and you wouldn't allow yourself to indulge in sexual activity with your wife as married people are able to do or with your husband as married people are able to do. Or it might come out of something like, oh, if you really practice self-control, you would abstain from this food. You wouldn't eat from this food if you really had the self-control that God desires for you to have. So they are adding to the word of God. They are saying things are wrong that God never said is actually wrong. And so Paul is like, 
the things that God created good, we aren't to say that they are wrong. We're to just receive them with thanksgiving. And that is actually the way to practice holiness as we receive these good gifts from God. We just receive them with thanksgiving. We don't have to abstain from things that God says we don't have to abstain from, uh, at least not necessarily. There may be certain things that individuals need know within themselves and from the Holy Spirit that they need to abstain from, but to, to enforce that on someone else is wrong. And to base this off of what we previously read in verses 1 and verse 2, it's demonic. It's actually a demonic way of distorting God's word and denying God's goodness. Now, remember what we said earlier about Satan and his demons. They they operate to distort God's word and to deny God's goodness. But don't miss the half-truth in this false teaching. Don't, Don't miss the fact that these lies oftentimes contain a bit of truth in them. So they're pushing people towards self-discipline and a willingness to abstain from certain desires, which in many ways is exactly what the Bible calls us to, right? Like at a fundamental level, those things in and of themselves are not bad. But the way that they were doing it was all off. There was truth in their message, but they were still off. They were using half-truths. See, as Christians, we don't practice spiritual discipline to become right with God. No, we practice spiritual discipline because we've already been made right with God. Christ giving us credit for his righteousness is the only way that we can be right with God. And to depend on our own effort, to depend on our own discipline, our own piety, our our holiness in and of ourselves is actually a way of rejecting Christ and his gospel of salvation for sinners that don't deserve him. See, there's a rebellious way to reject Christ as you decide you don't want to follow his commands. And there's a quote-unquote religious way to reject Christ in that we believe that we can muster up on our own something that we only actually can receive from him, which is the grace that we need to be made right with God, which is the very righteousness of Christ that he gives us credit for. And just so we're clear, when it comes to salvation, God is not opposed to effort. He is opposed to earning. We see this in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, where Paul says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. He doesn't, with fear and trembling. He doesn't say work for your salvation. He says work out your salvation with fear and trembling. We don't, we don't work for our salvation. We work it out. We don't try to earn our right standing with God, but we put forth effort to follow him and seek to know him more. These false teachers were using half-truths to lead people away from the faith. And it's great to be disciplined, but it's sinful to think that your discipline earns you good standing with God or makes God like you more putting rules on God's people that, don't, that didn't come from God and telling people to stay away from things that God says are good is both distorting the word of God and denying God's goodness by using half-truths. I've said over and over in this series that we are seeking to use this series to grow as students of God's word. And this is part of the reason why we need to be as precise as possible in our understanding of God's word. Because if we aren't precise in our understanding of his truths, we'll be susceptible to these half-truths that say some true things about God, but also slide in some lies as well to deceive us and lead us away from God. I mean, think about it. When Jesus had been fasting in in the desert for 40 days and 40 nights, Satan comes to him quoting the Bible. 
He comes to him quoting the word of God when he's deceiving Eve and when he's talking to Eve and Adam because Adam was right there with her. He comes talking specifically about what God has already said. So we need to be understanding of God's word. We need to be consistently growing as students of God's word because the, the, the deception that's coming is one that will be difficult to actually detect if we are not familiar with God's word and his teachings and what he says. It is vitally important that we grow as students of the word of God, that we grow in having a firm grasp on the scriptures so that these half-truths, these subtle lies that the enemy brings to us will not hinder our joy, our faith, our hope in the Lord. We must be relentless in growing in our understanding of God's word because our spiritual lives depend on it. And the good news for us is that he has made his goodness and his word available to us. And we, we, we see this with Adam and Eve in the garden. He had made his word available to them. He came to them. He, he explained to them what was true, what they should do, what they should not do. He, he approached them. They weren't able to approach him. He came, he came to them and told them what was right and what was wrong, what was true and what was not. And the same is true for us. His word is available to us. He made himself clear to us. The question is, do we stand on it? We saw Adam and Eve, they did not stand on God's word, even though God made his word available to them. So the question for us is that when God, since God has made his word available to us, do we stand on it? Do we study it? Do we meditate on it? Do we soak it in and, and seek to understand it more and more and grow as students of the very word of God? Praise God that he has made his word available to us and to, so that we will be able to stand against the destructive lies and half-truths of the enemy as he tries to distort God's word and, and deny God's goodness. We see also there that God made his goodness apparent to them and available to them. When they were tempted to, to doubt his goodness, all they really had to do was look to the garden. God had provided so much for them faithfully. He had provided for, for all of their needs right there in the garden. He made a special place for them. He gave them good and fulfilling work for them to do where they could work in the garden to provide for themselves and eventually their families. God had been so good to them. He gave them companionship where they had each other to love. He gave them his very own presence where they were able to have fellowship with him. When they were tempted to doubt God and his goodness, all they had to do was just look to the garden. And family, there's a number of places in the Bible you can look to see God's goodness, but, but what can be said of Adam and Eve can also be said of us. If you, if you ever find yourself doubting God's goodness, all you have to do is look to the garden. Because we have a Savior that succeeded where Adam failed. Adam failed in the Garden of Eden, and Jesus won victoriously for us in the garden of Gethsemane. And all we have to do is look to that garden where our Savior had a desire to forsake the mission that will require him suffering and humiliating and excruciating pain on the cross, suffering condemnation in our place as he died for our sin. And he said, God, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. And then he prayed to the Father, and we see this in Matthew 26, 39. Nevertheless, this nevertheless right here proves the very goodness of our God to us when we are tempted to believe lies that he is not good. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. In that moment in the Garden of Gethsemane, the goodness of God is on full display in a way, in a way that it, it settles it. 
It settles it. He is good. When he chose to go to the cross and die for us that we might be saved, when he chose that excruciating pain and torture that he was willing to go through, the condemnation that he suffered so that we could be made right with God, it proves to us that he is good. One of the things that I consistently try to remind us of is that we don't judge God's goodness based on our suffering. We judge God's goodness based on his suffering. The fact that he said, nevertheless, God, I will, I will follow you, Father. Whatever you would have for me to do to save our people, I will do that. He is good. And if you ever find yourself forgetting that, I want to advise you and encourage you to look to the garden. So when the enemy is lying to you and telling you that God doesn't love you and cherish you after that one thing that you did or after that handful of things that you did, look to the garden and remind yourself that he knew every way that I was going to sin before I sinned, including the thing that I am currently feeling much shame and self-condemnation over. And he still went and died on the cross for me so that I could be made right with him. So when the enemy is lying to you and telling you that God isn't good to you, Look at all of this that has happened in your life. How can God be good and allow you to suffer in this way? How could God be good and allow this type of oppression? How could God be good and allow this type of pain and this type of injustice and this type of racism and this type of murder? How can God truly be good? Again, we don't look to our own suffering to determine who our God is. Our suffering does not tell us who God is. God's suffering tells us who God is, and he is good. The one who came and allowed himself to be oppressed, to free his people forever from oppression, to who allowed himself to suffer under an unjust government so that he can come and free his people from all injustice. He is good. The enemy would love to use this time to, to cause us to lose all hope and all faith in our God and tell us, see, God isn't good. If you could trust in him, you would have never allowed this to happen. And even though it's, it's okay for us to have questions about why things have happened, one thing that we do not question because we understand from his word is that God is good. Do not, family, hear me on this. Do not allow what is happening in our world today to be used by Satan to distort the word of God or deny God's goodness in your heart. He is good. He has proven himself to be good. He chose our comfort over his own comfort. He isn't just good because he has blessed us in a variety of ways in our life. He is eternally good because of the eternal blessings that he has given us. He has blessed us with something greater than any other blessing that we might ask for in this life when he sacrificed and blessed us with his very life. Family, let's look to his word and let's look to the garden, the garden of Gethsemane, and find the truth that can't be distorted and the goodness of God that absolutely cannot be denied. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you. Thank you for just being good. Father, there are many who have been deceived by the lies of the enemy because of suffering, because of injustice, and have decided that you were no longer worth following. Father, would you help that to not be us? Root us in your, in your truth. Help us to know what it means to find you as our rock and our refuge and our fortress and our hiding place and our salvation, God. Give us that grace. Give us that strength. We need it. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.